Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's back to school time. Reading, writing, and arithmetic will be on the slate. But there's a new R in town that you might not know. And it could change the way we educate. This week, we're going back to school to learn the need for relevance in the classroom. And we don't mean whether or not school is relevant. It is. Sorry, kids. What we mean is the concept of one topic being connected to another. We'll learn how teachers can alter the way they pose questions, known as framing, to bring out more creative answers. And we'll also find out how this approach can bring in social value to a problem so that it has a wider impact to the students. And in our SAS class, we're going to hear about how the art of surprise can help students realize they are a relevant member of a classroom and society. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to show you that a good education is much more than just getting the right answers. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Back to school. It's such a momentous occasion. And until recently, limited to filling children's brains with literature, sentence structure, and equations. Let's face it, most lessons are one-dimensional and very straightforward. The alphabet consists of 26 letters. A subject and a verb must agree. 2 plus 2 equals 4. They're perfectly good lessons, and they do improve a student's ability to exist in the world. But what about more intricate questions that don't have a single answer? As grade levels go up, so does the complexity of problems. And in some cases, there is no one right answer. Responses may vary, and this can influence how a student sees the world outside the classroom. Let me put it this way. Everything we say in the real world, including this podcast, requires context. The information we share has to have relevance to the wider world, or else why are we listening? But in school, this is sometimes lost as we tend to focus on simple answers to simple questions. Yet even something as straightforward as math can have a contextual value in society. Take, for example, calculus. Now, I know it may not seem all that relevant to our daily lives, but did you know that it plays a role in ensuring an airplane has a smooth takeoff and landing? that it helps the water in your taps to be delivered regardless of the weather, and that a new song becomes a hit everyone will love. All of that thanks to calculus. Now, don't you wish you paid a little bit more attention? This is a process known as framing, and it can turn the dullest subject into something awesome. And as we're about to find out from our first guest, it may help students become more creative in their responses. She is Heidi Bertels, and she is an assistant professor of management at the City University of New York, College of Staten Island. Scientifically speaking, what is creativity? 
That's a good question because people talk a lot about creativity. It's one of those words that everybody uses, but it's kind of hard to define what it is. And research in management has defined creativity as having two components, basically novelty and usefulness. So in order for something to be considered creative, it has to be both novel and useful. And that what is novel and useful is to be judged within the context that creativity is looked at. So in the context of business management, which is my field, an idea that is novel but not useful might, for example, be a beautiful piece of art. So it's definitely something that's novel that we want to look at, but it might not increase revenues for a business, for example. An idea that is useful but not very novel might be a restaurant's decision to create a seamless account, right? So that's definitely useful. They can increase their revenues, get more sales that way, but it's not very novel. Like lots of restaurants have a seamless account. So again, for an idea to be judged as a creative idea, it has to both have these traits of novelty and usefulness. And in my study, um, we were trying to find ways for students to come up with more creative solutions to business problems. And so they were being evaluated on the novelty and the usefulness of those ideas. And that's where the framing comes into this equation, right? Right. So framing is one of the things that that I looked at because it might have an effect on how creative you can be. So what what framing is actually something that I think everybody knows and is familiar with. And it's, it is the practice of emphasizing certain elements of a message and de-emphasizing others. And by doing that, you influence the interpretation of the message. And people engage in this all the time. So if you think, for example, of going to the grocery store and you need ground beef. So there is packages on the left and the packages on the left say 80% lean ground beef. And on the right, there's packages, and it says 20% fat ground beef. It's basically the same, exactly the same thing. But people will be more likely to pick the beef, the ground beef, that is framed as 80% lean. So the options are really identical, but still, because of the way that, that it's framed, that this message is framed, the people will more likely choose one of the options. And so how you frame things really affects the decisions that people make. Originally, that's not really what researchers thought. Researchers thought, oh, you know, people can make completely rational choices. They will look at the outcomes of a decision and then pick the best outcome. But more recently, and this is still 30 years ago, but in academia, I guess that's still pretty recent. Research, <laughs> has shown, <laughs> research has shown that that's not really true. And so in 1979, or I guess 40 years ago, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, they demonstrated that the choices that we make are not just only determined by their outcomes, but also by the way that they are framed. So if you think about how you can say things with different words or have things occur to you in different settings or situations, that is going to affect decision makers as well and not just the outcomes of any decisions. I thought this was extremely interesting, this idea of framing, and I was interested in understanding, can we use framing to increase creativity? I like the idea of health framing, like you were talking about with the meat. But you studied Mm -hmm. something called prosocial framing, 
And I'm wondering, how does that change one perspective? Okay, so this is also something I came across that I thought was interesting. And what pro-social framing is, it's you present an issue in a way that suggests that the solution to the issue will benefit others. And so by asking students to think of how their ideas can benefit others, they have to consider the perspective of others. And this perspective taking is something that has been shown to affect the usefulness of ideas that people have. So just bringing it back to creativity, that usefulness is that one component of creativity, but you also need novelty. But so pro-social framing specifically is a type of perspective taking and that we, you know, I hoped would affect the usefulness of the ideas that the students have. And to think of an example, when you have a product innovator, when they take into account the perspectives of the customers that are going to use the products, then they develop more useful products. I hypothesize that, okay, if we subject a student to pro-social framing, which is a type of perspective taking, then they should develop more useful solutions. And there was a specific way that I did this. I want to ask you if you have ever heard of a company called Tom's Shoes. Tom's Shoes, it's a company that a lot of students are familiar with, and that's why I kind of like it as an example. But it's a for-profit company, but what they do is when you buy one of their products, the company makes an in-kind donation to a person in need. And they started off with shoes, and that's still their main business. So when you buy a pair of Tom's shoes in the United States, the company donates a pair of shoes to a child in a poor country. Kind of an interesting model, right, because it is charity, but not really because it is a for-profit company. So they try to be a for-profit company while also doing good. And I really like that idea, uh, resonates with the students. And as I said there, most of my students are familiar with it. So, so the task that they had to do, let me start off there, is they had to come up with a new business model for a pizzeria. So they were all given a business model for an existing pizzeria. Just think of your neighborhood pizzeria, nothing fancy. And then they were asked to change it and come up with new ideas for this pizzeria. And, and the students that were in the pro-social framing group they, they were then said like, oh, this manager wants to, you know, change the business model. And, you know, they heard about Tom's shoes and they were inspired by the story. And so, therefore, now this manager wants to donate a pizza to a, a child or a family in need for every pizza sold. The hypothesis then was that, okay, so now these students, they receive this pro-social framing. So now they're going to take the perspective of other people and therefore they're going to come up with more useful solutions to reinvent this, this pizzeria business model. So the other group of students received opportunity framing. What they were told is, well, you know, this pizzeria is doing really well. They're seeing increasing demand. The manager feels that there is a great opportunity for growth and increased profitability. And then again, they're asked to change the business model. So where that comes from is there has been quite some research in the management area that shows that when companies are able to frame something new as an opportunity to their business, that they're able to come up with more novel solutions. So think about you're a big company and uh, I don't know, just as an example, you could be like a big company in the oil and gas industry. And you hear a lot about green technology and how that might obsolete your business in the long term. However, if you're able to frame it as an opportunity, as something that can expand your business and be good for your business, then 
then managers and companies are able to think about in more open ways and they're able to come up with more novel solutions. From that research, I thought, okay, great, so maybe we can try opportunity framing on students and then see if that leads to more novel solutions for them. So then we have the two types of, the two components of creativity, novelty and usefulness, and two different types of framing, and we can see what, you know, what these types of framing, what the effect is on the novelty and usefulness of student solutions. Before we get to the results of Bertel's experiments, I have a question for you. How would you handle the challenge depending on how it's framed? What would you do to improve either the opportunity or the pro-social impact? I'm sure that depending on the context, your answer will be different. But think about that answer for a second and ask yourself, what did I lose by choosing one type of framing over another? There's always gonna be a trade-off. It happens in society, ecology, and even in finance. You can never have your cake, or in this case, pizza, and eat it too. This is why relevance is such a fundamental part of education. Context in a question will have an impact on how you see the world. It will also reveal the most important values to you. From money to empathy, to keeping your executive producer happy, not that I know anyone who thinks that way. As we develop our responses, we develop ourselves. And that is a key part of education that seems to be lost in current one-dimensional curricula. Now let's return to the study and find out that even the most solid hypotheses can go in completely unexpected ways. What was the end result when everything came back together? Right, so then I did my analyses and that's always like, you know, you've worked on this for two years and then press the button and you're finally going to find out what the results are. The results, the, the hypotheses were partially supported. So the opportunity framing, that led to an increase in novelty. But unfortunately for pro-social framing, I could not support my hypothesis. And actually data showed a decrease in usefulness for the students that were in the pro-social framing group. And so that was a bit of a surprising finding. There's a few reasons why I think we see this effect. I think maybe the pro-social framing that I used was too difficult. The students might have thought when I said, okay, this manager wants to donate a pizza for every pizza sold, students might have thought by themselves, how is this possible that we're ever still, you know, going to be profitable? Like, this is not a good idea. Like, they might just not have liked what I proposed, keeping in mind that they still had to have a profitable business. Maybe I should have used another type of pro-social framing. Maybe I should just have done something like, okay, the pizzeria wants to round up every purchase and then donate the change. Kind of like um, America's Keep the Change initiative that they had for savings. The other possible explanation would be that these pro-socially motivated students, that they would focus more on the perspectives of the people in need, so the people that needed the pizzas, rather mm-hmm. than the organization. And that the pro-social perspective was too narrowly directed towards just one group of people. So maybe this idea of perspective taking should be bothered and just maybe should have said something like, the manager wants to keep in mind the customers and the suppliers and everybody else while they're making these business model changes rather than being so specific as to one party that could benefit from it. I know that the Milton Friedman people who are devotees to his idea are probably going to get all upset at me. You (laughs) may take a hit in terms of the usefulness, but if your novelty Mm -hmm. is there, 
then you can adapt, you can evolve. And I think from my own perspective, I would want to see children to be able to think in that pro-social way as opposed to simply thinking Mm -hmm. in an opportunistic manner. I totally agree with that. I just think that the framing needs some tweaking. I think it's, I think deep down the hypothesis is probably still be supportive, but the way I operationalized it might have been a little bit too extreme. I do think that this is worthwhile to keep on looking at, and maybe I should just change the specific way I framed it. Because, you know, as you can see, the framing definitely has an effect and it's kind of powerful. So that also means that if you frame it in a way that, you know, that it shouldn't be framed, that it can have a negative effect. Being very careful about how to frame it specifically is, I think, important. You get this task to come up with a new business model and now you need to give a pizza away for free for everyone that you sell. I just think that students can like look at that and say like, how am I supposed to do that? Like, what genius idea was this <laughs> of, of a professor? You know, it's yeah. just not realistic. Like, more that type of thinking. Whereas I think if I had made it a little softer, um, like, or, or let them choose what they wanted to do, because some students actually changed it and they said themselves, oh, I'm going to donate money or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But I think then having the idea of thinking about others first could be a very valuable tool in helping to foster creativity in all students down the road. Yes, and it might also actually have other positive outcomes, right? So the goal, your goal doesn't have to be per se to increase creativity. Your This pro-social framing might have other positive effects that we did not measure, right? We just measured novelty and usefulness, but maybe there are other positive effect in terms of thinking different ways or more critical thinking or I'm not really sure what those outcomes would be but we only looked at two outcomes the way it was framed the operationalization of it might not have been ideal so pro-social framing might still have a positive effect on usefulness if we frame it right but it might also have a positive effect on many other things and so yeah I don't there's no I don't see any downsides really to pro-social framing It's SAS class time, and today we're going to look at a different kind of relevance that is important in the classroom. The internal relevance to your society. You may not realize it, but the way students frame their own belief in themselves can have a significant impact on that report card. Our guest teacher is Michael Roussel, and he is a licensed psychologist and associate professor at Southern Oregon University. He has learned that something we all experience could be the key to improving a student's performance. It's surprise. But we're not talking about trick questions in class. We are talking about the value of using alternate ways of thinking to spark different attitudes. Now that is awesome. But there's something that's even awesomer. His work all started with another psychological phenomenon we've all heard of, but many of us don't quite understand. Hypnosis. What was it about hypnosis that led you down this path of research? About 35 years ago or so, as a young adult, I was, went to a, a hypnosis show, and I was totally fascinated. I was drawn in. How could somebody get somebody to change their beliefs, even if it was artificial, for, a, for that moment, but just by making some kind of remark? For instance, if they told somebody on stage, hey, you're, you're, uh, you're in the Arctic, and they would start to shiver, or you're on the beach and it's hot, and they would start to loosen their collar. And I, it just became fascinating, fascinating to me. And at the time, 
I was a teacher in schools. And so I thought I was teaching in the junior high. So I became fascinated and I thought I'm going to learn everything I can to, on about hypnosis. And so when I did, I started to hypnotize all my friends and my cousins and everybody I knew, family members, until I pretty much wore that out. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to hypnotize my students. Now, that's a pretty dicey event. So I wrote my parent, the parents of all the students I was teaching at the time and said, hey, is it okay if I hypnotize your students outside of school? And every one of them said, sure. They even joked about it a little bit, said, hey, can you get them to take out the garbage? Can you get Sue to clean up our room? So I got permission and I experimented a little, but what really intrigued me was how do students act out suggestions? And I started looking at my students in the class and I looked around and I thought, oh my goodness, I wonder if students are just acting out beliefs they have and where do these beliefs come from? You know, for for example, if you can imagine a, a little Johnny and he's struggling with math and as he's working on his little math problem and the teacher walks by and, and the teacher says, oh, Johnny, you sure struggle with math. And then the teacher walks away. Now, if Johnny accepts that, he now has a new belief. He's a math struggler. When math problems show up and he's in the math class and he looks and he struggles with math, he gives up. Why? Because he's a math struggler. He has that belief about himself. Now, let's just back that up a little bit. And what if little Johnny, eight-year-old little Johnny, was struggling with math, and an enlightened teacher came by and said, Hey, Johnny, the way you stick with it when you're struggling is the sure sign of a strong learner. Keep it up. And then when little Johnny had difficulties in math, why, he'd just stick right with it because that's the signs of a strong learner and he's a strong learner. So I was fascinated where these beliefs came come from. And so I decided I'm, go I'm going to study this. So about 35 years ago, I moved to Oregon, to the University of Oregon, and took on a PhD program to study what are the naturally occurring states of hypnosis? I don't want to hypnotize my students. I want to find out how did they get their beliefs? What is the natural precursor for beliefs? And that brought me here today. Three-decade study on life-changing moments. And how does surprise fit into this model? I understand hypnosis is about calming the mind down. When we're talking about surprise, it's getting the mind to act in a certain way. How does that change a person's belief? So what I did is I started looking at all sorts of stories. I looked at stories from Chicken Soup for the Soul, looked at stories of celebrities or people and um, pe people who had turning points in their life. And as I examined these turning points, I started to notice a pattern. And the pattern was that people had these turning points, there was always this high emotional arousal. But in this last decade, I've discovered that that emotional arousal is almost always surprise. So that triggered in me a study. I was, became deeply interested in how surprise works. What is the neurological mechanism in surprise that triggers high suggestibility? 
when I, when I looked into the neurological and cognitive, cognitive evidence for surprise, I found that surprise is basically a belief revision reflex. A surprise is, is neurologically your, your mind saying, stop what you're doing and pay close attention. Something really important is happening. During a big surprise, you get a two-phase, it's called phasic. You get a two-phase burst of dopamine. Phase one, now it only lasts a few milliseconds. And what it says is, and psychologists call that salience. What happens is it tells you, pay attention. Something really important is happening. Stop whatever you're doing. And that's why people, when they're surprised, typically freeze and look around. Now, the second part, the second phase of dopamine, now that's long lasting. The second phase of dopamine is figure out what happened, learn instantly, make a belief and move on. If it's a good surprise, your dopamine level goes up. Now, psychologists call that valence. A higher dopamine level means approach. A lower dopamine level means avoid. So really, the surprise that you are promoting isn't about having some kind of equation where trains are going at certain speeds and you've got a trick question because, you know, there was a car on one of them and not on another. It really comes down to surprising the individual to believing something that they may not already believe in themselves. Yes, yes. With a little bit more of a nuance than, than that is that the best way to surprise somebody is to name what they think is a weakness as an asset. And when, when, so if, if you're looking at your student and uh, the, the teachers out there, you're looking at your student and they're working slowly, well, you call that thoroughly. You're saying your ability to think so thoroughly will help you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what you do is you identify a behavior that they're currently exhibiting. And even if they're not exhibiting that exact behavior, for instance, they may not be thinking clearly or focusing on detail. But the fact that you name that, they accept it. And that's called psychological closure. We accept it. We're more likely to accept the comment because we can make it make sense. So that's the call the cause of the cause effect resource statement. Now the effect is you can say anything you want after that. For instance, uh, if I'm if I see a student who's struggling or going slowly, and I say your ability to think thoughtfully or think carefully will help you solve this problem. The cause is you're thinking carefully, and the effect is help you solve the problem. And what, that's, what I've done here is I've named a resource, and I did that all in one statement. The cause your willingness to think clearly effect will help you move forward and solve this problem is a resource. Do you think then that this can help to reframe a student's sense not only of themselves but also of their role in society simply by having a different belief in themselves? That's a very broad question. So let me take a stab at it. First of all, uh, using surprise doesn't always work. There are some nuances that you have to pay careful attention to, but a surprise is an instant revision process, and you can change someone's belief. Now, it doesn't always work, but when you use surprise, 
to give someone a positive comment, it's exponentially more effective than if you just give a passing comment. But in essence, we are always in simple communications in our interaction with others. We are always trying to affect them. We're always trying to produce an effect, whether it's a positive or a negative effect, depending on how, how your interactions are going. So is it okay to try to produce productive mindsets in people? I think the answer is a positive yes. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it gives you a new appreciation for relevance in education and how that can be incorporated into making better students. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming, and we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show in the form of themes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.